E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Joy Cole of La Villana Wines in Italy. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm great. How are you? Very nice to see you. Very nice to see you. So you went to school in Cornell. I did. I did. What was that like? Very different from what I'm doing now. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, hotel school. It was great. It was a lot of fun. The hotel school is a really small school. It's kind of like a high school within a really large campus. It was a great experience, though. I mean, I had a lot of fun, met really great people, and it's kind of what put me into the hotel industry or hospitality industry. Why'd you make that choice to begin with? Gosh, it started with my father. He went to hotel school in Switzerland. So I kind of was always around that. And I thought that, yeah, maybe I'd want to go into that and work in hotels or travel the world doing that. It's kind of how I, I, how I started. And I feel like you did a lot of trials of different kinds of aspects of the hospitality, restaurant, and retail. I really did. I think I did it all, almost. You know, started in hotels, restaurants, all sides of the restaurant, to the kitchen, front of house, everything. Working for distributors, suppliers. What was that like? You know, it, doing everything, if it doesn't teach you what you want to do, it teaches what you don't want to do. And you learn, you know, what, what is out there, what your options are. I was always involved with wine to some degree. And it was nice to be able to kind of dabble in every part of it to see what really drove me. Yeah, I'm convinced that every step I took brought me to where I am today. So why wine, though? So I went to the hotel school thinking that I wanted to work in hotels. And after the first year, was not convinced at all and was without a job. And my dad, who has always been passionate about wine, was opening a wine store kind of like as a hobby in our hometown in Connecticut and asked if I would come help him open it. So I came back and had to for the summer and I had to learn about wine, obviously. And that's kind of where the ball got rolling. And I thought... It was really fascinating learning about how wine was made, about wines, you know. I mean, at that point, it was like differentiating between red and white, seriously. Like, there's Cabernet, and there's Pinot Noir, and there's Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc, and just, like, getting that down. Uh, It was really basic. But it started there. I, I enjoyed tasting it and, you know, learning about it, and that got the ball rolling, and I went back to Cornell and switched from a hotel concentration to beverage management concentration, and took all their beverage courses, the wines courses, everything. I think I was one of the youngest in the wines course. I remember that. Normally it's like a senior's class. 
and started TAing and started studying wine and stuck with that. And then it was just a matter of figuring out what I wanted to do with wine. I liked being around it. I liked tasting it. I liked sharing it with people, teaching it. And uh, it all began there. And what did you do after school? After school, oh my gosh. I remember I was jobless. It was like totally in that time where it was impossible to get a job, like your dream job. Um, I think like my brother graduated a few years before me. And I remember for them, it was like, have your pick of like any job you wanted. And for us, it's like, there's nothing <laughs> available. Because this was like 09-ish? Yep, yep. 08 was when that started, the crash of the economy. I moved to New York and started working for Guilt Taste, which is a startup that no longer exists, unfortunately. And we sold wine and food online. It was a great concept. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. As you know, shipping, shipping wine in the States is near impossible. So for us to ship online was like a really big struggle. It cost a lot. And it was impossible to ship to all the States and managing it. And so unfortunately, it didn't work out. And uh, at that point, I was working for the startup, which was a great experience, but, you know, it lasted like, or I had days that lasted, you know, 12, 13, 14 hours. Like in any startup, at least 12 hours a day at a desk. And I was like, this is not how I imagined myself, you know, talking about wine or even selling wine or just like being around it. You know, when I had a few hours, I'd go to tastings at the after work, but it was rare because I was just always crunching numbers behind this computer. And I think I just kind of hit like my personal breaking point where I was just like, okay, this is not what I want to be doing. You know, I was just thinking today when I was coming in, how much I love the city when I'm not living here. But for me living here, I, I just couldn't do it. You know, I was like disconnected from nature and I'm realizing that was what I really liked about the wine was like connecting to the terroir, connecting to like where it's from. And you know, that, that, something coming from the land can make this amazing product. And so I knew I had to make a change and figured I would do the only thing that I hadn't done up until now, which was get my hands dirty and see what it's like to make wine. And so I picked Italy. I don't, I've always just been drawn to Italy and personally, they're my favorite wines. And so I, that part I get, but the part where you picked Italy, I mean, that seems like the harder choice, like for an American. <laughs> Because, yeah. uh, you know, it would have been easier to go to California, Washington, Oregon, you know. So, like, I'm going to maybe offend some people right now if I say this, but I think to learn how to make wine, like, you have to go to the old world. I just, that's just how I feel. You know, like, you need to, you're not learning it in a laboratory. You're not learning it, like, in the winery. You're first going to learn it understanding the grapes. And and, that, and they're just naturally better at that because they're just doing it for longer. And, I, I mean, you, obviously, this, don't get me wrong, I'm not, like, saying this doesn't exist in the new world. Um, but they just have an older approach, a more traditional approach. And that's what I wanted to see. You know, I really did want to stomp grapes with my feet. It sounds so cliche, but I really did want to do that. And Italy, it's just like I've growing up going to Switzerland in the summers with my grandmother. She has a house in, on the border with Italy. So I was always around the Italian culture. And I just love the way they speak and like loved their food. And, you know, and I was just like, this is just going to be so magical. You know, really like who doesn't want to go to Italy to learn wine? And I actually thought, you know, I'd go, I'd stomp some grapes, and then I'd go to Oregon or Washington or something and find some cool terroir there and, like, start working there. And Because that's right about when I met you, when you were about to leave New York. Yeah, yeah. We were tasting Masolino, right? Yeah, yeah. but you seem like, uh, 
this is not a criticism. You seemed entirely different then than you do today. Yes, I'm sure. What like, was I like? To, to me. Like, yeah. I, you know what's the big difference? Mm -hmm. Besides the fact that you're looking less New York now. Yes. Is that you seem to have a very clear idea about what you're doing now. Yeah. Which at that time was not true. Yes. Really at all. Exactly. I didn't think. No. You know what happened was I, like I said, it was such a great experience, but I really put myself like in this mold of what I like thought meant defined success, which, which just wasn't right for me, but it was like, yeah, you're working for a startup in New York. Like you have your apartment, like, yeah, it's like high success. And it just was like kind of a bit of a pressure for me to do something like that. Especially, you know, following my brother, who's like this big wig in finance and like my father's successful. And like, you know, you just felt like, you know, this is, this is what, who doesn't want to work for a startup, like startup, you know? <laughs> Great, cool. And it is cool. And it just wasn't for me, though, you know, and that, that's probably what you saw. Like, I, I just wasn't really in my. I saw you in element. this idea of I want to do something, but I don't know what. Yeah. That zone. Yeah. That's exa that's really, I was in that. Which has got to feel totally different than now. Oh, completely. Right. Yeah. It definitely does feel different. Yeah. I left my job and I went to Rome and stayed in a friend, a very key friend, which you hear about in the future of <laughs> this conversation. Her apartment in Rome, um, she offered it up. She's like, just go hang there until you find a job, which was great. I think I just ate mozzarella and prosciutto every day and <laughs> drank wine and ate gelato, literally, until I found a job that was every day just walking and eating. I would put off job hunting for a while. Yeah, <laughs> six, like, months oh, maybe. Like, <laughs> six months. Just, yeah, it was probably a little bit longer than I was supposed to, but I was busy eating. I really like Rome. Yeah, I do too. It's amazing. And you really can just walk that city all day every day and it doesn't get boring at all it's, ugh, it's such a beautiful place and yeah so i was looking and all of my connections really were to some of these big wig wineries and you can come do an internship or a stage in a laboratory as they say it with their accent and like working like, in a lab yeah, like doing yeah pH like readings doing and stuff. readings and mixing and analogies and i was like that's not what i meant when i said i want to learn how to make wine and you know i was like no i just really want to work in the vineyards like we don't have a job for you there like they just weren't sure how really to like where to put me um, i wouldn't know either if yeah. there was a young american girl with no prior experience i wouldn't yeah. necessarily know that she wanted to do vineyard work yeah no you exactly I, right. I think that would take you to convince them yeah exactly and um so i kind of was just like not finding the right fit and i don't remember <sighs> I have to ask Joey Campanelli about how this even happened. I'm trying to think. Like, I think he, we emailed a little bit about different contacts that he had put me in touch with. And he was like, you know, you should go check out this winery that's just outside of Rome. And they make these really great natural wines. You maybe didn't enjoy their project. So he said it was just outside of Rome. And I was like, oh, great. Just outside of Rome. You know, I'll catch like one of, I don't know, like a bus that goes just outside of Rome. <laughs> and... I started Googling them, and there's this, in this tiny town, the winery is called Le Coste, and it's in Gradoli, which is where I am now, and it's not just outside of Rome. I guess maybe from, like, if you're from New York standards, yes, but it's two hours outside of Rome, and really difficult to get to, so I had to rent a car, but I, I you know, I sent them an email, and I was, you know, I'd like to come work for you, is that okay? And they said, yes, like, come up, we'll talk. I went up, had a great experience. So you were, I arrived there in my little smart car and uh, pulled up. I think I got lost like six times on the way because it's just not that easy to drive in Italy. And it was so amazing. You kind of drive up. It sits, Gradoli sits on a massive crater lake and their vineyards are right like on the hillsides facing the lake. They're facing southeast. 
and you kind of just like drive up and you're coming from like below another hill. So you kind of come up and this lake just opens up in front of you. It's so breathtaking. It's really, really picturesque. And they have these really amazing vineyards that they've built. I think they have about five hectares now of their own. And uh, yeah, it, it's completely different from anything I ever saw. Not Nothing mechanical, all by hand, like complete, very natural. They have this like amazing microclimate there, obviously, and with the lake and all, like fruit trees growing right in the middle of their vineyards. Like there's no like monoculture, you know, it's just like really like this jungle of flora and fauna. It's really beautiful. They have like 10 hectares, I think, of land. And part of it goes down into this foso, which I guess is like a creek at the bottom. It's a lot of these, if you think of like a crater lake, obviously the lake is the center and then the hills go up all around it. But it's not like one large hill that's surrounding, you know, it's like hills with valleys. Every hill is like a few hectares large and then dips down and back up again. So yeah, they have these terraces that go down to this creek that technically runs into the lake. And they've kept those completely abandoned like they didn't they haven't cleaned them and the intention is to have animals there and the higher up parts that are they cleared a little bit is where the vineyards are and yeah the idea is to kind of create a a dynamic environment where everything really does work together like an ecosystem of some kind. yeah exactly exactly and they've totally done that i mean they've been very successful doing that so you arrive and what'd you tell them so yeah i said you know i'd like to work for you for a little bit, I didn't know. I was like, I'd love to, st- it was summer, I think. I was like, I'd love to stay through harvest. And, you know, like, yeah. Have you tried the wines yet? Or? I did. I only tried one of their wines at that before I had arrived, which was their Litrozzo Bianco. And that's actually like, I was like, yeah, this is great. A winery near me, but I've never heard of them. Like, is this going to be a good experience? And when I tried that wine, I was like, yes, this is totally where I want to go. It's completely raw. Like you just, it's just like grapes. And you're like, you can tell these grapes are like screaming their terroir. It's like, sounds so weird, but like, it's unlike any other wine I ever had. And you know, it's because it's where it's from. And the fact that it's like not been manipulated so much, you know, um, it's a funky wine, but I, I love it. I love it. That seems like a big shift from the kind of wines that I associate with the guilt group yeah. lineup. Well, that you know, that's actually one of the things I struggled with when I was there. I, you know, I wanted to bring in these funky natural wines, but there are two things. One, it's harder to sell because there's limited quantities, and two, it's harder to sell because it's just unknown and people are terrified of these types of wines because they don't, they can't really expect what they're going to be drinking, and that scares them. And also, just like from a like a financial. For them, it's in their best interest, obviously, to just sell wines that really like, they can push and sell and big names, big money, you know. And I understand that. But uh, yeah, it was like against my my heart, my beliefs, really. And, yeah, they sold. So it I must just, have felt like a release then to com- like, yeah. be like, oh, I don't have to deal with any of that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I really was. Every, every decision I was making at that point was for me, which was nice. Really nice. So yeah, I went up there and I tasted with Gianmarco and Clementina. And it was such a crazy experience. I mean, they are just like packed, like like they're filled with emotion and ideas and passion. And that was really exciting. I was like, this is this is where I want to go. These people are going to actually teach me and make me do things. And like, I, I wanted to go somewhere where they really were going to make me work. I wasn't going to just, you know, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, cut some some grapes and put them in a basket, and that's it. Like, you know, it like put me to work. It really did, which is great. That's what I wanted. So yeah, I started right away. I think it was July. Well, and I started, I think, at end of August for harvest. What is it that they saw in you, do you think? That I really wanted to have an experience. Like, I, you know, no bullshit, really. 
I came dressed to work on the first day. I was like, do you need me to work today? You know, I think that that's, they liked that. They liked to see that. Um, it wasn't like a frilly, like, experience. Like, I really wanted to get my hands dirty. I mean, there's some relation to working in the kitchen as a girl, right? Yes. Similar. Yeah, you know. completely. You have to, like, show you want to be there and you want to get your hands dirty. You really want to do everything and... I made that really clear from the beginning. They're like, why? I was like, you know, I, I want to learn everything. Like, make me do everything. Like, I, there's nothing that I think is below me ever. And that's the only way you can really, like, learn how to do something, I think. You have to just be able to, no judgments, no nothing, just, you know, do everything. And, yeah, I mean, I was working, like, <laughs> I remember when I arrived and I was convinced that I could speak Italian, like, fluently after being in Rome. I was like, yeah, you know, I got this, no problem. I arrived on the first day. He's like, metti il tubo nel mostello. And I was like, what the hell did he just say? I have no idea. He just said, put the tube in the bucket. And I was like, I literally stood there like blinking. Not, I had no idea. And he's like yelling at me. And I was like, this is going to go so well. I have no idea this vocabulary. Was and, it like a dialect thing? Or? Yeah, dialect. And also just vo- yeah, vocabulary that I've never used before. Like who uses like, right. you know, press or pumps or like, I never used that when I was ordering mozzarella and prosciutto in Rome. <laughs> yeah, but then they, he immediately put me with his whole crew that was working the vineyards and they're all from Moldavia and they all spoke among themselves and I obviously no idea what they're saying and was not learning Italian that way either. So it was like a lot of days just like complete silence before I was like kind of they like let me in and started to speak with me in Italian and, and I could get by. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy experience. I when I got there, I knew within a week that I was going to stay. Forever, you mean? Forever. Cuz you have a winery there now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I can't leave that now. <laughs> I mean, a lot of that seems like a short amount of time to yeah, me. Yeah, the whole thing. I mean, if you think I, that was August 2013. Yeah, not even 3 years ago. That's an incredibly short amount of time to do that. It was all like luck and misfortune and misfortune really and that same amount of time what i've managed to achieve is to lose more hair and become more balding like, <laughs> oh. and that's, uh, and that's same three years like that's it's been a big achievement yeah yeah it's also given me a lot of gray hairs doing this in three years yeah as a, i mean i imagine it's stressful working with yeah. like uh italian bureaucracy and stuff. yes yes oh my gosh yes i mean i before i even got there just like a year of intense doing what i was doing like that was so what was that? What did you do at La Costa? Name it, and I did it. Yeah. I, like, honestly, I think, and that was that was the great part, was everything in the vineyards I did, everything in the cellar. I mean, yeah, I really, like I was saying, I really wanted to prove to him that, like, he wasn't wasting his time having me there. So, you know, I lifted all the heavy stuff. I mean, I got jacked. <laughs> I got it, no joke. I was, I had to lift so many heavy things and, like, you know, climbing up ladders into these massive tanks and falling off the ladders and you know it's everything i did everything in the cellar every everything bottling labeling and the coolest parts was when i was with him alone in the cellar and he was deciding like what to do with wines where to you know keep them aging take them out mix them blend them you know whatever and that that's where you like really get to learn like when you see him like being like ah this wine has a problem and how am i going to fix it or how am i Am I going to leave it, you know, making those decisions? Those were, those were more important, I think, than everything else. Everything else is labor, really. So where was he coming from in terms of what were the, the influences that were really prevalent in his own thinking? 
Marco was a wine writer, and so he had like, and he was writing. I'm um, drawing a blank for that big major Italian wine magazine, Porthos or something. Right, Porthos. Thank uh, you. Yes, uh, he's a very successful writer, and so he had a lot of contacts. And he's a really, I hate using this word extreme because I don't find what he believes to be extreme or what I to do to be extreme. But obviously, as in a world that's so commercial, like us doing going to the really far side of being natural is considered extreme when that really was the original and we've kind of come to this commercial thing that to me is way more extreme but that's a whole other philosophical conversation but um yeah so i guess you could, in that sense he's extreme and really wanted to like bring back the original way that a winery was made and it was it's not just about making wine or growing grapes but it's about creating this ecosystem that we've lost you know in in all this monoculture farming agriculture and i think that's really what motivated him he's also like anti-corruption anti <laughs> and he's in italy so he's trying to like really do something independent alone self-sufficient successfully and that's great for the planet as well he's working with a host of different grape varieties yeah mostly sangiovese which are local sangiovese you know as you know there's all these different clones and all slightly different it's called greghetto and that's his red. And then he also, I think, has some canaiolo, some ciliegiolo. And as far as whites, he's working with Procanico, which is Trebbiano, really. It's, it's, I mean, there's definitely a difference between us and Montefiscone, which is on the other side of the lake. Their Trebbiano is a little bit different. And yes, we locally call it Procanico. And he has some Vermentino and some other local grapes. But um, really all autochthonous stuff. So that must have been interesting for you. Probably yeah. you hadn't even drunk a lot of wines from those grape varieties sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're actually working with them in terms of planting them and trellising them. Yep. I think it was more also just working with autochthonous grapes. Where we are, now there's about three or four new wineries, but up until 10 years ago, it was dying. Like dying. There was no, like people were ripping out their vineyards and um, there was just like no future in agriculture. But everything that was there up until that point was Procanico and Greghetto, pretty much. And when, like, the opportunity came for people to come in and replant, like, it seemed obvious to me that you just put back what there was. And instead, some people kind of just brought in all, like, the famous French varietals to make, like, a, a Bordeaux style in another place. What was the history of the region and why was there a decline? Actually, we have in our town was Lazio's largest co-op winery. and. Um, the area actually was famous for its greghetto. I mean, it's, it has an insane microclimate. It's beautiful. It's, it's got the volcanic soils. It really does make beautiful wines. And people used to be able to live there off of a hectare of land and survive. They just would sell their grapes to the co-op. This was a massive co-op. And it just kind of got in the wrong hands. And it kind of started going downhill. And newer generations went out to work for factories. This is what happens in a lot of Italy. You know, factories come in and it's a better job, it's more stable, and it's not as draining as agriculture. And it kind of slowly died out. You know, aside from us, a few of us, like young people are starting new things. Everyone that's there are retired, you know, 75 to 85 year olds who are still working their land. because They can't not do what they've been doing their entire life. There really is no one in like the generation between us and the 85 year olds. That's so incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really impressionable. I mean, you drive by this co-op and it's like sad. It's so, I mean, I was in there the other day. It's completely dead. It's completely taken over with mold. It's 
smells terrible. It's just like such a sign of like, but like, you know, there's just so much history there and it just kind of got in the hands of the wrong people and failed. And, and so people tore out their vineyards. They like would just put in olive trees because it was easier to maintain something they could do on the weekends when they weren't working and it uh, kind of died out, which is unfortunate, but that's kind of like what motivated me also when I was like, got to stay there. I, I, I love the idea of like kind of a resurgence, bringing it back. There seems to be a desire to be around some older people in, mm-hmm. in what you're doing now. They have, they're packed with knowledge how to farm this land where I am. And I mean, they're incredibly stubborn and they have like only their way of doing things. And so, but it's important to know how they did it and why they did it that way. And like, maybe I have a different way of doing it, but it's just like, you can't just come in with like all of your new modern experiences and think that you can just do it your way. It's, I mean, they've been doing it for generations in a certain way for a certain reason right so yeah they're very influential so did you Um, see characteristics of that local sangiovese that you thought were notable oh yeah they have these tiny 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 (laughs) relatively small berries tightly packed and really awesome acidity that just works so well with the volcanic soils and i don't know like i mean i know he brought in other sangiovese from i think he kind of i think he might have I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I think he might have kind of stole some stole some grafts from Soldera, which is kind of cool. So he, he did bring in some Sangiovese from outside the area, but just because there's not like you're not guaranteed what you're getting. You don't unless you have someone really good at reading grapes, but uh, from the locals, because you know someone will tell you they have Sangiovese, and you go in, you're like, this is not this is all Chiliagiolo, like these, <laughs> you know, just like some old guys who not aren't sure anymore what they have in their vineyards, but um, but yeah, um. It's definitely a Sangiovese that's kind of like become specific to our area. You can totally see the differences, I think. You know, for me, I am going like a different route. Like, I, <laughs> all these old guys who are actually really influential to me, all these older men who work there think I'm crazy because I am will be planting my vineyards at 600 meters above sea level. It's pretty high. Yeah, it is. Um, they have this traditional way of um, that they would evaluate their vineyards because because everything went to co-ops the co-op kind of assigned zones to the different levels of the hillsides and zone one was right in the middle like the classic 350 meters above sea level perfect exposure zone two was just below that closer to the lake and then zone three which is like the their idea the worst was lake level and 600 meters above sea level so when i tell them i'm planting up there they look at me like that is completely sacrilegious. You would, why would you plant in zone three? It's zone three. It's the worst zone. That's like, no, it's maybe the worst zone for like Aliatigo, which is one of our local varietals because it's just not going to mature well up there. It's too cold, but not for maybe Chiliagiolo, which is something that I want to do. So it's like kind of a balance between you want to keep the old world and the idea that I'm, you're using autochthonous grapes, but I mean, I am an American in Italy. Like I can't deny that I, I'm like, a, it's a really modern thing that I'm doing. So there is still that modern idea, which is like, you know, just bringing in new ideas. I just, I think it fascinates me. I think you can do really cool things at a higher elevation. And what was the segue from working for La Costa to having your own winery? In the end, I worked there for a little bit more than a year. And I hoped to work there and slowly start a project on my own. And maybe under like his advisory or using his winery. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't have the same ideas for what I wanted to do. Um, and I mean, that happens all the time, you know, you have someone working for you, you want them to stay there working for you and like, 
you know, that's, that's fine. I just, I was ready to at least start on my own. I want, I would have loved to stay, but so we parted ways sooner than I wanted to. Definitely. I wanted at least a full year cycle. I wanted more than one, but you know, at least I could see, you know, the evolution of one vintage. So (laughs) I kind of panicked, that's for sure, (laughs) immediately, (laughs) because, you know, I, I, was the idea was like you know I was gonna be in the safe place I was gonna continue working for someone who's really inspiring to me and slowly start and like slowly figure out where I wanted to be like find my plot of land start with a hectare max you know which is already a lot and and work that way and it didn't work out that way so I really had to like plan quickly and this is like where that was a misfortune that was followed by a lot of fortunes I had a lot of um, a lot of these contadini these old guys who had old plots of land of their old vines that they wanted to you know, hang the towel on. And they were like, please, you know, take these over and start working these, which was great because they gave me all their old vines and I was able to play with, around with those. And that's what I'm still playing around now. And at the same time, this friend of mine where I stayed in Rome, I was saying before, she and I partnered up and we decided to create this winery together, which is awesome. She's, she's a great business partner. And so, yeah, we were together. We bought a farmhouse and all of the land around it and which gave us about three hectares to plant, which we'll be planting in the next two years. So it, it really did happen really fast. So I've had one vintage now of all old vines, and this will now be my second. And yeah, so I'll have a few years just old vine wines, and in a few years I'll be, I'll be making wine from our, our new stuff. What did you find in terms of the vines that were there already? So mostly is it's Gregetto, mixed with Canaiolo and Chiliogiolo. And that's what you see in like the red vineyards. And the whites, typically they're like more heavy Procanico. For some reason, the ones that I snagged have also a lot of Malvasia in them, which I, I personally am a fan of. I, don't, I love Malvasia. It's, it's nice balance with the Procanico. So yeah, that's a white. And this year I also got some Aleatico, which again, these Contadini are really angry with me because I'm not going to be making a pasito, a classic Aleatico di Gradoli, which is their sweet wine. Instead, I'll probably make it into a, a rosato. That's my intention. Yeah, I love it. Like that directly pressed. It's really nice, refreshing wine. Is there a, a tradition of that there or no? Rosato, Aleatico, yeah. not at all. Interesting. Because yeah. you'd think it would be a natural. Yeah, no, they're like, this is a sweet wine. Like... <laughs> I don't care if you hang dry it. I don't care if you dry it on the vine, but you're making a sweet wine. <laughs> no, I'm not making a sweet wine. Aside from the fact that like, it's just a daunting thing for me now, like to think to, it's a hard thing to do well. Do you go to church there? Oh yeah. Church. I said, no. <laughs> no well, I'm asking because do they serve? Uh, uh, I actually don't know what they serve in the church. It's probably Aliatico sweet it's wine. It's gotta be. So you're probably like, that's probably the reason. Yeah, maybe. Do you know what I mean? A lot of yeah, times the wine yeah. that they serve at these... The yeah, churches that's true. sweet. Yeah. It's also, it's like they're, it's what they're known for. They're known for their fagioli, their beans. They have this one white bean, that fagioli del purgatorio. And their aleatico di graduli, which is like, aleatico, aside from Isla d'Elba, it's the only other place that's like the autochthonous grape. It's this aleatico. So a lot of fragrance. A lot. A lot. It's an early ripening, super fragrant. I mean, right now it's flowering. It, the vineyards, oh my God. You can just smell it from a, like a far away. Yeah, really fragrant. And it's great as a sweet wine. It's just not my thing. Um, but I, that's why I love it as a rosato. You know, it's got that super fragrant stuff, but it has a really nice like pompelmo, grapefruit acidity. Does it develop high sugars? That's why you have to pick it early? Yeah. 
What about Chilajola, which I, I particularly like how you say, by the way. Chilajola. Yeah, you say it much more beautifully than I do. <laughs> but what's it like to work with that grape variety? This is all based on intuition. I don't know much. Like, up until now, I've just kind of thrown it in my red wine. Um, but I love the way it tastes. And I've had some people Chilajolos, but I, I, I'm really loving. I love the idea of making a pure Chilajolo because I'm on high altitude. And I, I just think it would do really well. I hope, because I mean, I'm going to plant <laughs> over a hectare, so it better do well. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of against the market trend, right? Yeah, I know. I don't see I, so many. I mean, I've seen a few. Yeah, I, have you? I don't know. What yeah. is it like in New York? I don't I have no idea. There's a handful of them. They tend to be medium weight, a red fruit, not with a lot of grip. Yeah, I think like acidity might be an issue, definitely. Um, that's like the one thing that I'm... I literally am like, well, I wonder what that's going to be like. You know, is that going to be my problem? Like making sure it has enough acidity. Um, I don't plan to put it in I definitely in, like no new wood, old, old, old stuff that I'm hoping will just like have it settle and, but not nothing I'm hoping that will influence. And if so, then chestnut. Yeah. Is um, there a tradition of chestnut in the area? Those who used wood. Yeah, definitely use chestnut, but it's really rare that they used wood. Um, if you go into people's cellars, it's just all glass. They love dummy Johnny. Like I've got some, I got some old barrels for like, I got lucky that I found those, but the rest that I, the people were like, yeah, I have some old stuff for you. You should take it. It's all like completely rotting and has holes. I don't know how they are making wine in it, but it's like not, not acceptable. Oh um, yeah. It's rare that you see it here really. So uh, yeah, but I, I think it would be nice, right? Some, I some love chestnut. chestnut. But what drew you to chestnut originally? Just the taste of it. Yeah, I love it. I actually love whites and chestnut. It's yeah, really me too. yeah. We I like you see you definitely don't see a lot of wood in our old cellars like in our town, but you definitely know that they were using cement. A lot of these old cantinas, they like you can see where the cement tubs were. Like they they've taken out to use stainless steel now, but they all got rid of them. I haven't I I've, I've been like trying to get some of these guys to grab some old bottles so we can like taste them. Yeah. But um, the Is there anything in the I've, cellar? Yeah, but they never their intention was never to age. Right. Like there, it was like, I'm making wine. It's one of my like survival things. Like, like I'm going to make potatoes. I'm going to have potatoes. I'm going to have beans. Like I grow beans and all my other vegetables. And this is my wine. And it's meant to last for the year. Like they were never trying to make more than, than like what they needed. So was the tradition for blending across grape varieties or individual grape varieties? Definitely some blending. I think, I don't know how this like comes about because it's never, it was never really about like doing a single vineyards or like single grapes it's it was all kind of just like you did what you need to do to make a wine you know i don't think there was a lot of art or thought behind it um but who knows why or who brought in what grapes like why did canaiolo come around or chili Jolo? i don't have no idea about those like the history but everyone always had some of it in there probably because like when they went to plant they mixed they got like some some of their stuff mixed up and didn't plant 100 percent greghetto and it turned out good obviously you know that happens a lot and then it's kind of stuck that way, you know, they kept using it. But, you know, it's always like small amounts. It was always majority, you were looking at over 80%. Definitely, always. Um, you see some of them who like are still going now. They Maybe in the last 10 years they planted Montepulciano. They're like into that. That's like the new thing for these old guys. It's cute. <laughs> but um, that and then, and Procanico and Malvasia. Definitely like a lot of Malvasia. And they kind of did that to... Give some more fragrance, I think, to the Botanico. 
Oh, they yeah. blended those two together. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And what's that like? I think I love Malvasia. It's intense, and I, I don't think you need it with Procanigo. I think Procanigo also alone or maybe mixed with some other stuff, you could probably do that. But I love the way Procanigo is on its own. I think like Trebbiano made in like mass production can get really flat or really like uninteresting. But when it's curated well, I think left on the vines a little bit longer, lower yields, obviously, it's got a lot of potential and makes some beautiful wines. Definitely. I mean, they like when we're harvesting Procanigo, it's the most beautiful. It's like some of them are like rose colored, some are copper colored. The grapes are just amazing. They're so beautiful. Is there a tradition of skin contact with that? Yeah, definitely. Oh, there is. Yeah. It's not like required. It's not like some do press directly and some will have skin contact for, you know, I think they'll do it for like a few days, up to a week. I like up to a week personally. I like a little bit more skin contact from the white. And so it's volcanic soil, but it's also a red topsoil? In some areas. Yeah, not everywhere, though. It's, the topsoils, like, will vary majorly depending on where you are. Or, like I said, like, where I have, I have very little topsoil. Um, I'm, like, straight to tufo almost on the top the volcanic. Yeah, totally depends. But it's, and it's all just because of what's been carried away what's we carry down i mean like, obviously when you're down on the lake it's super fertile too fertile obviously to, for grapes it's like potato land but it depends on on where so is there anybody else working at 600 meters or no not at that height not producing um commercially there is another amazing young guy okipinti andrea in our area he's a little bit below i think he's probably like five four fifty five hundred and does a lot of work with aliatico yeah, yeah, he's great. I mean, he experiments a lot with Aliatigo. But yeah, he's a little bit below me. I'm the only one that's up at that level. And you decided to do it as a farm, not just as a winery. Yeah, it kind of goes back to similar to what I love, what Gianmarco and Clementina do is that they kind of created this like microclimate or this closed loop idea of everything has a purpose, but and it's helping something else kind of. And it's not just for like one sole selfish purpose that I'm doing one thing. And my fiance has sheep, which is really great working with him, bringing the sheep into the vineyards. It's like helps both of us, obviously both helps the vineyards fertilizing and uh, feeds the sheep. And that's, that's also really important to me. Does he make cheese or? He does. Yeah. What's that like? Do you help with that? Uh, I do. (laughs) He makes a really traditional cheese for the area, a pecorino, but they also eat it fresh. And I kind of like, this is again, this like tradition versus like new thing. And I try to influence like making natural cheeses, like making some stinky cheeses, which like he can't stand because it's just like he never grew up with stinky cheeses, but I think they're great, you know, and I'm trying to get him to to try to make some other, other stuff. Cause I mean, that place is also great for cheese. I mean, it's just like uh, the microclimate is also awesome for sheep's milk, makes some great cheeses. So all in, what's it going to look like? We're starting with three hectares. It's probably going to be, so maybe it'll be a little, yeah, probably be a little bit more white heavy than red because I just love the Brocanico on the volcanic soils. Um, I'm not looking to make a huge team. You know, I really, I I like, you know, me and maybe a couple of guys that are helping me. So between two, two, two and a half hectares of old vines and these three, I'm, I'm, I'm good. That's enough. 
for now, at least. Um, and then, you know, for kids one day, they can always grow it. That's, that's their decision. But we're also bringing in a horse or two. I haven't decided on the second one yet to do some manual labor in the vineyards. Uh, we have, obviously, my fiance has 400 sheep. So that's a whole other part of the equation. And, and we also have all of our other animals that feed us throughout the year. Pigs. What's the word in English? Oh, rabbit, <laughs> conillo, and chickens, yeah. And, and that's kind of the idea is to kind of be able to live off the land and while we're making wine and cheese. And we also just bought an, a plot of land that's on one of the main roads. So we're hoping to build like a little market stand there to also sell to locals. I think that's really important. I don't want to just be there making products that, that they don't have access to. And what's the vision for where the wines are going to sell? Definitely in the U.S. That's a dream of mine. And then who knows? You know, I dream of selling it all over. All over. I mean, it's not going to be massive production, so it's going to be limited quantities. But, you know, so it's either do I want to develop one market really well or do I want to have a little bit in all the different markets? I'd love to just... But you envision it as an export product, not something that you sell at the farm stand. Yeah, the wine definitely. Unfortunately, like... The economy is not strong enough in Italy that they can support. I mean, like I will have, I'll be making wine that I can sell to locals, but that's going to sell for like maximum three, maybe four maximum euros a liter. I mean, they literally, when I, when I'm like, you know, five, five a liter, they, they look at me like, that's way too much. So, I mean, they pay nothing for wine and they also can make it themselves. So yeah, but I do want to have something for them, but it won't be, it won't be the stuff that I'm exporting. And you're planning a winery facility. Yeah. So yeah, what's yeah. that like? Um, oh, my <laughs> bureaucracy in Italy there. Luckily, uh, having an investor is great because they actually give you quite a bit of money in Italy to help you build or buy equipment. You know, you're looking up to 60% of, of your costs being covered. You just need to have the liquidity in the beginning to to pay, and then they'll eventually pay you back. So I'm one step ahead of the game in that sense that I'm able to invest right away and and build and they'll be paying me back. And it's just a matter of time to get projects approved. Like you have, in order for me to build a winery, I have to send a project down to Rome to like some, I don't know who sits in an office in Rome and is looking at my, I have no idea. And they say yes or no. Our area is, has a lot of restrictions because the Etruscans were there. So there's an archaeological restriction but I mean, I'll be building something that respects all of that. I don't want to build some massive thing that is, you know, an eyesore, of course. But yeah, there's like a lot of steps involved. What's going to be important in terms of components and the actual facility? So um, because it's all tufo below us, which is great. It's great to dig into. Um, I can make a winery that's completely underground and have its own temperature controls. So I don't have to bring in a lot of equipment for that. And it's, I'm really keeping it simple. I think the beauty about where we are is, is it's natural beauty. There's no need to make anything like special in the cantina. In terms of elevage, I mean, how long is it going to be before a wine is sold? Like once it comes in as grapes, like what's the turnaround time? So right now with all these old vines, um, it's fun. It's a, it's a matter of experimenting um, and seeing what quality they have and if they have the ability to even age. Um, or, you know, some of them unfortunately like need to be recuperated a bit and brought back to life. And uh, then I can decide whether or not like some of these vineyards have aging potential. Um, like it's really like, that's where I have to decide first. Um, so right now everything is kind of just meant to be consumed young. 
and we're do- I've like put you know a little bit of every wine that I've made, not everyone, but a few of them in in some wood to see if they can age or um, left some obviously in bottles to the other ages. For me, like I don't have the experience in the area nor working in other places, you know. So I don't I don't know how these grapes are going to age. I've, I've seen them where I was working how they aged, but that's also the different terroir, different elevation, different vineyard techniques. So this, those are all factors that are kind of playing in the game of just experimentation right now. What do you see as the biggest challenge ahead for you? The experience. You know, this isn't like a family winery of taking over. I didn't study enology or agriculture, and it's just like kind of just throwing caution to the wind and just trying it and and seeing, you know, how it goes. And, and you know, sometimes it'll be it's turns out great and sometimes I just totally messed it up and you should be okay with that and like willing to take that risk at this point. Yeah. So if someone were to come to you and say they wanted to do something similar, what would you tell them? Do it. (laughs) Um, Do it. Definitely. I like, don't, there's, don't let anything stop. You just try it. Just try it. Like fear. I mean, I think that's true in anything, right? Fear consumes you. It's not going to turn out well. You just have to, Grab the bull by the horns, right? That's what they say. Joy Cole would rather consume wine than fear. Thank you very yes. much for being here today. <laughs> Thank you. Joy Cole of La Villana Wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs... And so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.